Hey, loyal listeners of the Professors In podcast, this is Kel. I wanted to talk to you about something really cool that we did last week on the Himalaya app. If that's not where you're listening to the podcast, I invite you to come over and do it there. But what I really invite you to do is become a premium member. Because last week, we held a day-long AMA, Ask Me Anything. I answered questions all day long about everything from publishing trajectories to positioning yourself in terms of fit to how to explain gaps in your academic record. It was great, and I'd love to have you over there for the next one. So come and join our premium membership, $7.99 a month. See you there. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Professors in Podcast. I am Dr. Karen Kelsky. And I'm Kel Weinhold. And as always, we are so happy that you have joined us today and to be here to listen to what we have to say about the academic job market and all of its many, many quandaries and complications, and not just the job market, but the career as a whole, no matter where you are in it, whether you're just starting out or whether you are looking out toward retirement or whether you are thinking about leaving it. We love to address the challenges that you are confronting One of those challenges is harassment. And today we're going to talk about sexual harassment. So just let me let this be my content warning. We will be talking about sexual harassment today. So please be forewarned. And we are going to be talking about it along the same lines that we talk about everything else here at the Professor's Inn. We're going to take up difficult topics. We're going to look at what we know and what we have learned from all the people we'd worked with over the years. And we are going to um, talk about some hard stuff. So away we go. Yeah. So some of you might be aware that two years ago, I did a crowdsource survey on sexual harassment. It actually went viral and got about 2,500 entries. I did eventually close it to new entries just to secure the data so that it would be, you know, stable So for people who were running analyses on it, but in any case, it actually got a lot of coverage and was covered in the Washington Post and CNN and other places. And everybody was just kind of universally shocked at how rampant sexual harassment really was in all of the different varieties that the anonymous reporters were, or I should say respondents, were describing all of these incidents, both small and large. So Kel and I then get invited to speak about this in different contexts. And some of what we're going to talk about today is going to be based on the talks that we give on campuses and also in our webinar recording that we have about sexual harassment. I was just thinking as you were saying that the survey that you did came out during the Me Too movement. It was Me Too PhD was the hashtag that you started using. Mm -hmm. But that people's shock was a lot like the shock about Me Too. Is I don't think it is a shock to most women. I think it's a shock to a lot of women as they begin to unpack what they've put up with over the years and what they've normalized. I think that's been a shock. Yes. But, but that thing that happened and it happened around this and we saw it in national media where it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this is happening. It's like, really? Because yeah. all you have to do is pay attention. Yeah. From your own life and the lives of your friends and your colleagues. But also I think that this plays into that classic problem that permeates everything we ever talk about in the academy, that the academy occupies this weird niche where it's 
like held up on a pedestal. Like it's somehow, A, like in our previous episodes, somehow the rules of capitalism don't apply, <laughs> that somehow the work you do there is not labor, right. and therefore it shouldn't, you shouldn't discuss compensation schemes in related to academic work. And then also that somehow people have this weird idea that somehow the kind, you know, sexual harassment, other kinds of harassment and violence, exploitation, all of these things are going to somehow not happen in the academy because the academy is so special. Right. Within a, a extremely high bound hierarchical system that has been traditionally run by men, there's no possibility that there would be sexual harassment. Absolutely no possibility. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, what a surprise. But actually, what I ended up articulating in all of the many, many interviews I ended up doing after my survey was explaining to these very confused reporters what it is about the Academy that actually makes it more conducive right. to sexual harassment than many other industries and areas of work. We're going to talk about those today. And I just want to point out, just before we start with the figures, that we're talking about sexual harassment, but I think that as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how it makes, how the structure of the academy makes a bigger space and more potential for harassment and bullying in general, that mm -hmm. kind of power bullying, but sexual harassment. Is yeah, today. we can talk about that on another we day. Need, we need, a, we we need do, a bullying podcast. We need a bullying podcast because I hear stories about it probably once a week. Well, there was just one this week that came out. Of course, this will be like a month and a half later, mm -hmm. but you can go look it up. The... David Perry. Right. David yeah. Perry writing and then being harassed by a history professor for his the way he for, identified himself. For his legitimate actual staff title. Right. That said senior academic advisor right. in the history department. And some tenured faculty said, how dare you use that term? Makes it sound like faculty need advisors. Right. And, and then senior he, to us. he went behind his back and contacted his department head to tattle on him, which could have had serious repercussions. It didn't, thank God. Yeah, so there is very much a culture of bullying, and we are going to talk about that. But today, let's stick with sexual harassment. So first, just to give you some facts and figures, in the UK, the National Union of Students found that 4 in 10, so 40% of all students reported um, sexual harassment from small incidents all the way up to crim criminal acts of stalking and rape. A survey by the University of Texas system revealed that 20% of undergrad and graduate women in the sciences, 27% in engineering, and 47% in medicine said that they had been sexually harassed. And then the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, issued a report that found that 58% of female faculty and staff in academia in all disciplines across the board have experienced sexual harassment. What's interesting about that is... They identify the three types of harassment in their report as gender harassment, meaning put downs, putting down people based on their gender rather than, than sexual come ons, and unwanted sexual attention, and then sexual coercion. Mm -hmm. What I think is striking about that 58% number, besides the fact that it's huge, is I'm just going to go back to the point that I made a few minutes ago. I wonder how many things they didn't report, how many women didn't mark themselves as having been harassed because we are so numb to the kinds of things that people say. And we stop thinking of them as anything other than the kind of thicket that you have to get through to operate in a professional space as a woman. Right. Especially where it's the gender harassment, mm -hmm. the put downs. So there was, might not have been explicitly sexual content to the incident, but I think very few of us are accustomed to 
counting that. And if we did, I think, honestly, I think the number would be higher than 58%. I think the number would be 95%. But I think we're also really, really good at explaining things away. Mm -hmm. I think about this incident on a train one time in San Francisco all the time in terms of explaining things away. I'm on the train and there's a guy who comes up behind me. I'm holding onto the center pole and this guy comes up to stand right behind me. And he like presses into the back of me as the train is moving. And then of course the train is rocking. So there's a little bit of like, well, that's weird. And I shift away, just shift my butt away. And he shifts with me Mm -hmm. and I shift and he shifts with me. Hmm. Every single time in that equation, did I turn around and say, back off? No, it was like, oh, well, it must be the train. Oh, well, it must be this. It must be that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, I'm being sexually harassed by a creep on the train. Mm -hmm. And I was probably 20. 21 years old and well-trained to figure out what I was doing that was causing the problem. Right. How is this my fault? Right. And how can I rationalize it so that there is not a problem with a man? God forbid. So I'm glad that we've come a long way in 2020 in the sense of things being named as sexual harassment and people being more aware. I think that we in terms of women's socialization and ability to forthrightly confront it in the moment. I think we still have a very, very long way to go, but it's a little bit better. But I do want to say, actually, that was my motivation for creating this crowdsource survey. So it was totally anonymous and it was meant to be that it had a lot of agendas behind it to be completely anonymous in terms of the reporters, the respondents, also anonymous in terms of not naming the perpetrators. And the reason was because I didn't want to get a list of actual names. What I wanted was a very broad account of the sheer scale at which these kinds of things happen. And that was achieved. And I'm really happy about the survey. I created it because I knew that it was, I knew it was rampant. I just knew it. I knew it from just being a woman in the academy for 25 years. Just knew it. Now, I do want to say that I myself did not experience personally particular incidents of sexual harassment. Gender bias. Gender comments. Of course, of course. So if we stick within that that, description, then of course you are. Yeah. But I'm always asked that, actually. That's And they, they say, so what happened to you that made you want to do this? And honestly, nothing very concrete ever happened to me in my career. And I think that it's really interesting because I do believe that that in some ways allowed me to do this survey because I could read these appalling stories. And remember, there were 2,500 stories and people were invited to present them in a narrative form. There was no word limit. People could write as much as they wanted. That's what I wanted as a culturally anthropologist. I wanted to hear their stories. I didn't care if we ended up not having a statistically robust set. That was not my interest. I wanted stories. So anyway, I was able to review them and assimilate them without being personally triggered. So that was a good thing. Having said that, I was appalled and horrified, and I thought I understood what I was dealing with. I had no idea, no idea the kinds of things that are happening out there. In any case, what you know, I understood from doing it is that it's very much hidden. It's very much denied. It's very much enabled Mm -hmm. by a squadron of powerful faculty, including women, who will basically always support and side with the perpetrator over the victim, and that our Title IX offices are not effective in dealing with it, even when they make good faith efforts. And honestly, I really don't know how often they make good faith efforts. 
I want to just add a little tempering thing to a little bit of this. I mean, I don't think women always side with the perpetrator. I think we've seen evidence after evidence that senior women are much more loath to give up their authority than they are and their power than they are to buck the system. But we just talked about that minutes ago. We're not willing to tell somebody to stop it on a train at 20. Why are we going to stop it in a faculty meeting at 55? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other part of you, we have talked extensively about men, but the survey showed us that 95% of the perpetrators are male. There's no doubt about it. And for those of you out there who have been witness to and subject to the same kind of harassment from women, I want to make sure that it's clear to you that we are not erasing or pretending like that doesn't exist. And certainly we had evidence of that with Avital case. Yeah, Avital Ronell. Yeah, yeah, that was the big case at NYU. Was it complete, or was she French or joint appointment? In any case, yeah, very well known case of sexual. Speaking harassment. of senior women, back right, yeah, getting right behind the perpetrator. Yeah. Anyway, you know, sharing a few of the outcomes of the survey, it was intentionally focused on PhD level, advanced degree folks, but many of the stories recounted sexual harassment that had happened in undergrad as well as in their advanced degree training, as well as on the job, as assistant professors, as tenured professors, as, you know, all sorts of scenarios. It also showed that there was no real effective outcomes in the vast, vast majority of cases. Only about 5% of cases showed any kind of appropriate punishment for the perpetrator. Retaliation was quite common. Mm -hmm. And um, again, the the issue of the, the somewhat, to me, unexpected role of senior women, how many stories did include a mention of a senior woman who uh, who enabled mm-hmm. the harassment, not the only one who enabled, but one of a team of right. or, or of, a, of kind of an institutional setting that that there were women in those settings as well as men who were uh, defending the predators. And it reminded me of Bell Hooks's um, famous line that patriarchy has no gender. Mm-hmm. So all in the service of the patriarchy. So one of the things that we see and you've seen and we see it across the world in terms of careers is that that with sexual harassment, women are routinely hounded out of their sphere, right? They're hounded out of the program, out of the lab, out of field work, constantly having to choose between their well-being and their jobs. Mm -hmm. The people who do stay and there are women who stay, and we mm-hmm. talk about the strategies to do that all the Power time. Through. Right. Their research is compromised. Right. There is no way it isn't. Just think about it. Think about what your day's like under stress. You know you're going to face a problem. You can't even concentrate in the same way. So you're going to, your research is compromised. You get less funding. You have a disrupted process. Or, for example, if you actually take action to get away from a perpetrator, Mm -hmm. you might switch programs or switch universities or take a different job. Rarely is a change in that environment going to be an improvement in your circumstances overall. You may be getting away from a perpetrator, but you may have to take a less good job. You may Mm. have to start all over again Mm. in a new PhD program and not have the same level of funding. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of ways, like I'm just following up on what you said, that these disruptions in the career path because of trying to run and hide, not run and hide, well, sometimes it's run and hide, but I'm just imagining, you know, we have rabbits. I'm imagining, you know, 
Under threat. Uh, rabbits who are, you know, prey animals. And when they take off, you startle a rabbit. It's suddenly hopping in a zigzag pattern all over the place frantically. And half the time they fling themselves into the door. <laughs> anyway, not, I'm not making light of any of this. But you, when you make a decision out of fear, it is often a decision that is not coming from a place of strength, actually. I mean, it's not building. It's just trying to tread water and survive. Right. And I would sort of want to explore that a little further and go back to all those things that you're talking about, about a less good PhD, have to start over, all of those things. I think those are ways that, those are stories that we tell to keep ourselves in bad situations. Mm, true. And so there's kind of a balance to that. You could end up starting over in a university that has, quote unquote, lesser university. And the positive consequences of that, of what you can do with your research, of what your mental health and physical health are like, all of those things. I think we want to put quantitative numbers against qualitative experience mm -hmm. and they just don't work. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I was just, you know, I, I read all the 2,500 sure, stories. Sure, you know and, how awful it Yeah, was. I know how awful it is. And I know how many women told me basically like I had to leave a job I loved mm -hmm. and take another job that was at a place I didn't really want to be. But I had to, to get away from this one toxic individual. And, you know, my income has never recovered. My research funding has never recovered. There were quite a few stories like that. So oh, that's absolutely. what I was trying to articulate. Absolutely. But I don't actually don't think I did it. I articulated it very well. So sorry about that. And but, I, oh. but I just want to follow up with that. Yeah. I want on the other side, I don't want to say, oh, it's just the way you're thinking about it. No, people have serious and lifelong consequences because of this. Mm -hmm. They... Even if you make it through and you quote unquote succeed and you get your new job and you do all of that, there's still the lifelong trauma of it. Mm -hmm. The anxiety for many people, the PTSD of mm -hmm. it, Absolutely. that has an effect on your experience. Yeah. Qualitatively, quantitatively, all over, it affects your experience. Yeah, your mental health. So I, uh, when I created the questions, it was pretty, a uh, pretty quick and spontaneous decision to do this survey. You? But I, I know, I know. Can you believe it? I'm usually so, you know, planning. And You're planning type. methodical. And anyway, um, I did leave columns for three different ways of responding, and the columns were: How did this impact your mental health? How did this impact your career? How did this impact your life trajectory? And I'm so glad I did because that's where we really understood what Cal just described, that some people absolutely had to leave the PhD and are not academics mm. anymore. We've right. lost them to the entire enterprise. That was a career trajectory. The, on the other hand, some people stay in the career and so they're still in academia, but they are suffering lifelong PTSD and anxiety. They're on medication. They have are been in therapy they have panic attacks, that would be impact on mental health. And then impact on life trajectory might be, um, you know, choices about where you were willing to live or other things like that, that you stayed in the academy, but you um, had a very different way of um, engaging with it. Mm -hmm. that, that, that all of those were distinct and that and they were all, the combination was unique and completely variable. So that's one of the things that I learned from doing the survey. And the other thing that I learned from doing the survey is that no place in the academy is a safe space. Classrooms are actually quite treacherous. Empty classrooms, even more treacherous. But sometimes the harassment happens right there in the classroom while you're teaching. Professors' offices are a hotbed 
of sexual harassment. And I even know colleagues of mine, actually, who, you know, were well known for harassment in their offices. Uh, Then again, there are professors' homes that are even more treacherous. And then we'll get to this later, but oftentimes you end up in a professor's home or Mm -hmm. a colleague's home Mm -hmm. because of the way academia is run as a field of employment. Especially in the number of graduate classes Mm -hmm. that do an end of the year at the professor's house or let's have the barbecue, beginning of the year barbecue at so-and-so's house with all the graduate students and all the faculty. Right. So there's a real line blurring of the domestic and the work in, in many places, especially in graduate school. Yeah. And then a lot of the harassment cases were from fellow students. I do tend to, my mind always goes directly to a professor harassing a student, but actually there are countless cases on the survey of students harassing one another Mm -hmm. and then the apartments and and so on but then we can't leave this without this issue of space without talking about conferences conferences are just you know rife with sexual harassment and the hotel rooms they take place in hotels usually and a lot of uh, meetings happen in hotel rooms and in fact job interviews still to this day happen in hotel rooms. Luckily, a number of the major conferences have not only stopped doing interviews in hotel rooms, which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. but I'm just going to add a little aside. They've also stopped doing interviews at the conferences, thereby not forcing graduate students to go to conferences to try to get a job. So thank you. I think it was the AHA I just heard doesn't do interviews anymore. I heard that too. But lobby your organization, no interviews in hotel rooms. No interviews at conferences. Yeah, let's just switch to Skype, honestly, or whatever platform you want to use. But, you know, financially, uh, the difference is incalculable. And and in terms of privileging the already privileged, those at wealthy institutions are going to have access to the funding to go to conferences, and others are not. And it also, to get back to our topic, it dramatically increases the risk for Harassment. Mm-hmm. That is true. You're talking about alcohol, strangers, hotels. I mean, they haven't done movie after movie after movie about what happens at a conference because it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, the other thing that I learned from doing this survey is that there are, if I had to pinpoint the thing that surprised me the most and that I learned the most. It's that there is this massive continuum from the tiniest little incidents with maximal plausible deniability all the way up to criminal incidents of rape and sexual assault. And that the tiny incidents can have as devastating an effect as, as larger, more obvious incidents mm-hmm. because they are so undermining mm-hmm. of your confidence and your sense of self and your sense of 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 uh, entitlement to be in the academic space the 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 space of of a graduate program or or a scholarly department and this is particularly so when you're a person who's already marginalized already uncertain of your ability to be there, of your welcome there, of your permission to be there, and you're coming, you might be a first-generation student, first-generation graduate student, you might be a scholar of color, you come from a background where no one has ever told you you are good enough 
to be a university professor, but you mustered your confidence and you got into that PhD program and you're there. And all of a sudden someone says to you something like, wow, um, you look really great in that shirt. I hope you wear that a lot more. And you, and that's your PI or your, you know, your advisor. And suddenly you're like, whoa, why was I brought here? Why was I brought here? What is my point? What is my purpose here? And it's so devastating. Well, I think it's really easy to see if you think about starting at the undergraduate level and someone who is just in love with the work that they do. I think um, our oldest is in love with her field, in love with the work she does. Holly Sai. She's in love with the faculty members. She mm. has different faculty members she just adores. Yeah, she and she sure adores is. them very much from an intellectual perspective. Mm -hmm. She is not the, he's so cute. It's the, he has the most amazing theoretical breakdown of blah, blah, blah. The rise of neoliberal conservatism in the 1980s, mom. Yeah. Mom, he's written five books. <laughs> All right, so you can see that if that professor is talking to you and engaging with you about your thinking and your thoughts, then you think that you're in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if that professor decided to make a comment about her looks and or what she was wearing, mm -hmm. first of all, she would be incredibly confused. And you can see why that would then begin to undermine, why are you engaging with me? Are you engaging with me because you're smart and I'm smart? Are you engaging with me because I'm pretty? Yeah. And yep. I think that that's the kind of insidious stuff that happens really young. And only 19, 20 years old. So she had a professor she met in her freshman year, and she total hero worship. Total hero worship of this Polly High professor. And he's, you know, endowed chair and this and that. And so when I, um, this is a story, but I'm going to tell it because it's quite pertinent. When I, and she said, I go to his office hours every week, mom. And I'm like, mm, do you now? So when um, homecoming came along and I went down to visit campus, I actually, over her objection. <laughs> Because <laughs> at that point, she was still really embarrassed about me. I went to the class that he taught and I sat with her. And at the end of it, even though she was like shooting daggers at me from her eyes, I went up to him afterwards and I said, hi, I'm Karen Kelsky. I'm Miyako. You know Miyako Iwata? I'm her mom. Hi. <laughs> stared at him and shook his hand very firmly. And, you know, of course I can't, that's, that's all I could do. That does that. Will Which not, is extreme privilege. In and of itself out. will not stop harassment from happening. But I wanted him to know that she had someone behind her and just that there, just, just sort of pushed myself into the equation in the, in a way that I had the ability to do. And it was entirely because that was the semester that I did this. Oh yeah. I it did was, this I survey. remember when you did it. Yeah. And I can, I was like, and she was so embarrassed and I was like, yeah, well. Obviously the ability to fly to another state, attend a class, meet the professor, talk to the professor, not what we can do. Uh, most of us can do, but there's a really valuable point in there. When you are in these situations, making sure that you have allies who know you mm -hmm. and who are watching and who can say, are you sure this is okay? Now, I know that neither of us ever said to Miyako, are you sure this guy's okay? We didn't want to in any way taint her experience, but she also knows what we do and how we do it and that she knows she has a backup. So I think that when we're, when we're operating as PhDs or 
master students or whatever, making sure you have a peer group around you that you can that who can say, "Hey, this seems out of line. Mm-hmm. This seems problematic." Yeah. Communication is absolutely essential. You know, we'll get to this, but I'll say it here too. Don't hide your uncomfortable experiences. Please find someone trustworthy to share them with and compare notes because usually it's rare that a harasser harasses just one person. Mm -hmm. Harassers generally harass. Sometimes it's serial. Sometimes they will pick one person per year and then just move that way. But other times it's multiple people at a time. Just to give you an example of the kinds of things that people said that were the smaller end of things, because I think those are the ones that are harder to recognize. One respondent told me that she went to her professor and he asked, who are you TAing for? And I told him it was a woman professor. And then he said, oh, do the freshman boys think that prof is attractive? And in a very insinuating tone of voice, that wasn't even about the grad student. It was a sexualizing inappropriate question to the grad student about her other prof, but it was gender-based and it made her completely uncomfortable. And she never went back to that professor for advice, thereby having a compromised advising experience in terms of the professional, you know, disciplinary level advice that she might've gotten from him, but he made it impossible. Then Another time she was wearing an outfit that professor stopped her in her hall and said, oh, that's a really sexy outfit. And that completely changed the choices she made about what to wear. She, uh, she said, that's the last time I ever wore a skirt. I wore slouchy, shapeless clothes for the entire rest of my graduate school experience. That's, that's another kind of impact that you might see. And then she also went along and compared notes with other grad students and found out that he was doing it with everybody. Well, maybe not everybody, but a whole bunch of them. And so I really want people to trust their instincts. I won't make it better. It shouldn't happen at all, of course. But to know that you're right, to know that you have boundaries, to know that you have a team of allies around you, even if the allies are other grad students, so none of you have a particularly great amount of power to change things, I do think uh, uh, resisting the isolation is really important. So we mentioned this earlier but there are very particular reasons that the academy is more susceptible to harassment than other environments. Mm-hmm. And it matches those environments where there are powerful people with powerful um, reputations for whom access to that same kind of experience or that knowledge has to go through them. So we can look at the same sort of thing in the Congress, where if you want to work in that arena, there are powerful people to get through, and there is a hierarchy. So And Hollywood. And Hollywood, right. That's mm. Thanks. I was sitting here trying to think of what the other one was yeah. stuck in I mean, my very, brain. very scarce opportunities. Mm-hmm. A handful of powerful men control 99.9% of all of those and you can't just say, forget you, I'm going to go work with someone else. Mm-mm, it's a very small ecosystem. So Karen came up w- looking at the survey with six reasons, and she talks about this with the news media pretty regularly, about what are the reasons that harassment flourishes in the academy, sort of to debunk their ideas of magic land. <laughs> One is, and it's just, you know, it's right there and it's easy to forget, there's a constantly renewing population of young potential victims. Every year, somebody new comes in. Mm-hmm. 18 years old. Right. 
They're coming in the door. And to be honest, and this is stated overtly in certain contexts that were more common back in the old days than now, that that was considered one of the perks of the academic career. You didn't get paid as much as lawyers and doctors. You didn't have as much prestige as lawyers and doctors, but you had access to young women. They would say that. I've seen it. I wish I could cite my source here, but I can't. I can't quite remember it, but it was like, yeah, but you get 50 young women every single fall semester to pick and choose from. So it's disgusting, but it's also true. The second one is that blurring of personal and professional lines that we talked about earlier, especially in graduate school and some intimate seminars and a lot of slacks, small liberal arts colleges. You have these seminar-type settings, and they often blend over into or blur over into the closing class at the professor's house or everybody meeting for drinks to discuss the latest topic at the local campus pub. Mm -hmm. There's... We have many, many, many departments across the world that are small and very insular. You go into this tiny little world and everything else disappears and there are superstars and there are people sitting at the feet of the superstars and Mm -hmm. you sit down at the feet of the superstar and suddenly start getting a particular kind of attention and and you're in an incredibly vulnerable position. Yeah, and you're so flattered on the one hand and don't forget grooming. Grooming, Mm -hmm. because graduate school, this should be on my list, and it isn't, but graduate school is so long Mm -hmm. that a faculty member can target a new grad student and just, you know, uh, start executing a multi-year plan, honestly, where, or at least a multi-semester plan, where uh, it starts with quite little, you know, uh, indirect flattery, and then, you know, ramps up into, well, can I text you? Oh, I'm going to send you these emails. So it's boundaries consistently being crossed over and over and over. But the other thing is our fields are often small. Japan anthropology, that's my field, very small. There's only about, what, if there are 10 uh, practicing Japan anthropologists in faculty positions positions at any one time in the United States, I'd be surprised. So they're just, you know. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Uh, right now, I mean, it was bigger before. Uh, so you don't have a lot of you don't have a lot of room to move somewhere else, and yeah. you have you know this need to work with that person. And I put need in quotes. Right. There's also this intense hierarchy. You come in on the bottom rung of the ladder, and you are trying to climb the ladder. And there are people with access to the rungs, and they are, and you have to go through them. Sometimes that's mentorship, giving you the guidance, showing you how to do it. And sometimes there's a there's a price to pay to pass. Well, they also, they write you the letters that you must have. They, they control access to your funding. If you don't have funding, most people can't continue. Right. Certainly you can't and do those, your research without funding of support, financial support of some kind. They write the letters that make it possible for you to apply for that support. They really do control in some concrete ways, your actual ability to remain in the field and doing the work that you are trying to do. Mm-hmm. And it goes without saying, but virtually all fields are male-dominated, except for women's studies. <laughs> and, and then there's the last one is that students are in a vulnerable position of dependency and also in a vulnerable position in terms of retaliation should they report incidents. So those are all the reasons. In addition to what was oh, we didn't mention, but the peculiarities of the academic research, astronomers do research on mountaintops in observatories overnight in the dark. <laughs> so 
they may be there may be just two people in that observatory or biologists might be out on a boat for weeks at a time with no way to get off archaeologists are in a tent for weeks at a time in a dig and there's no way to get away because it's a you know really rural area there's all kinds of vulnerabilities labs are their own their own space all these spaces that the work is done in the academy in spaces where a lot of public visibility is not available, and that increases the vulnerability. So what to do? Kel, tell us. <laughs> what to do? Well, first of all, we need to overthrow the patriarchy. Hmm. We need to desexualize women's work experiences and allow them to work minus male perceptions of their gender. Did you want actual concrete choices? Things. No, you those, want concrete are, those things are good. To do. But basically, That's a good start. So yeah, we, well, we, I think we should go in with that attitude. Right. First so, of all. So first of all, what I'd love to see if we want to do what, you know, I want to see us starting really young, talking honestly about the risks when you enter the academy. I mean, we talk about risks for young women in all sorts of places. And you know what? Because it always gets put on women to figure out how to operate in those spaces, I think we should start talking to our male counterparts mm. and to say, how are you stepping in when this is happening? Yeah. But let's go back to the to the or let's 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 look to some concrete things, right? One of the things I would love to see happen in the academy, and the, just as this is me as a working class kid who has, there's no doubt, I have issues with authority, and not in the classic way of like I'm going to fight the authority, but and I just don't think it's all that cool to be the great man. I don't, I'm not interested. You're interesting. Tell me why you're interesting, but I'm not moved or excited about, oh my gosh, you're so smart. It's like, oh, hi. That is true. I know. You've always been that way. Blows Karen away. We run into people sometimes who are just hugely famous or whatever. And I'm like, hey, how you doing? Because I don't care. (laughs) So what I would love to see is a turn away from this whole narrative of the great man story, right? Mm -hmm. We have all these stories of these great men who've gone out and done these great things. We never freaking have a conversation about the great women who've been lost because of the great men constantly being promoted. Yeah. We have one stupid great man. And how about the 30 or 40 Great women that we have not heard from, whose contributions we have lost because he harassed them. Well, look at Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Tons and tons and tons of people justified his behavior Mm. by saying, you know, this is this great man who's done all these great things. Or Woody Allen. Or Woody Allen. Brilliant. Genius. Let's, you know, Louis C.K. Well, Mm -hmm. he's a genius. And yeah, he did these awful things. But look at what we lost. Well, how many women comedians did we lose? Yeah. How many actresses never got to have their careers? Mm -hmm. And I know that there are actual names of actresses whose careers were ruined. And I'm forgetting them right now. I am forgetting them right now. But but I know I read stories about them. Their careers were ruined. What did we miss? So that's the first thing is I just want to dismantle this idea that somebody's contribution, their intellect, their discovery mm-hmm. makes them separate or mm-hmm. different than you. Untouchable. And let me push that a step further. You want to know one of the biggest outcomes for me of doing a survey is that I began to walk into all academic settings. And when I meet an academic man, I look at them and I say, who have you harassed or who, what harassment have you enabled? No. Not directly. You don't say, hi, Bill. I don't say What harassment have you? I don't say. 
Hi, Bill. Nice to meet you. Who have you harassed today? Uh, I don't say it directly, but I think it. And honestly, I really think that that is the way that vulnerable people should walk into interactions, is looking at them and saying, looking, and they walk into this department and they say, who's the harasser in this department? Not, is there a harasser in this department? Who's the harasser in this department? And how, what is the system that is enabling it? And you know, not surprisingly, I have a little bit different approach to it. And that I'm, I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. I'm saying that my approach is n- to that is a little, what feels like to me, a little less cynical slash realistic. You may just be being more realistic, but I, on a, on a more turning it more inward self, what I'd really like to work on is trusting that you know what you know. So you, we meet people all the time and we, as women, we meet people all the time that the hair on the back of your neck goes up, that you have that moment, that one comment. And if you parse it out to most of the people around you, they would say, what? But you have a core group of people and say, Hey, this dude said this. And they all go, uh Oh, mm-hmm. And on the uh-oh is when I wish we would start to say, I'm not engaging with you. Mm-hmm. And listen to the people before you. The exceptionalizing I saw in graduate school that I did in graduate school of saying, yeah, but not me. Yeah, but not me. Yeah, but. Mm-hmm. I mean, we used to harass the kids all the time. Harass. <laughs> we used to give the kids a hard time when they were little, when they would say, yeah, but I was just, don't yeah, but. Mm-hmm. Pay attention and listen to it and act accordingly, which is a little bit more, I'd like us all to become more aware version of yeah. which one of you has a harasser. I, I always think of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and they say, how many women should be on the Supreme Court? And she said, nine. Should be nine women on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Never had a problem when it was nine men. So why should it not be nine women? And I, I love that the the uh, chutzpah of that. Mm-hmm. And it's really like, let's walk in and say, let's stop thinking Guys are nice guys, are good guys. Why do we assume guys are good guys? Like, let's start walking in. I know, Cal, I realize you and I are not seeing eye to eye on this, mm-hmm. but I, I, I just, for anyone who, what I'm saying is, you know, striking a chord, you know, I want to tell you, yeah, go in and say, huh, yeah, oh, let's see what kind of bullshit we're going to encounter here. Because I do think that that's not a bad way to go into a setting, and that because and you know why I think that because it takes it off of you. You did nothing wrong, right? You are not the problem, and the victim is not the problem. The victim did nothing wrong, and and I I just like that it that it just pushes the the potentiality of a problem out to the people who have power. And the other thing that I um. Um, and, and the reason that that's so important to me is because once it's individualized and privatized into the victim, then it becomes a th- it, it becomes shrouded in shame. Mm-hmm. And, it beca- and usually in silence because you don't speak of it, you don't share it, and you just feel like, oh, what did I do wrong? I shouldn't have worn that outfit. Oh, I must have said something. Oh, how did I give off the wrong impression? And that the patriarchy loves that. They want women to blame themselves. They want women to silence themselves. They want women to leave. They want women to do the patriarchy's work for it. And so this is why I um, really just want the the nexus of problem to be pushed outward to those with power. And I agree with you. And I just want to clarify what 
the sort of our core difference in this is is the, and what I was trying to say with the I don't really care whether you're Katy Perry, whom we met at a Broadway play, and I chatted with because I don't know because she was there, and I was interested in what it's like to be Katy Perry. So I asked her. What and I'm you trying- can see that in the moment that she was unaccustomed to being addressed in that way, which was like not starry eyed fan. It was just like oh. And then we had a great conversation. Mm-hmm. What I was trying to get at is that I want people to go into the PhD, into these departments, into it with no preconceived idea either way. I want you to stop thinking somebody's good. I want you to stop wondering if someone's bad. I want you to start paying attention to what it means for you. Because where I get that from is Karen's point about a tiny little interaction. And I say tiny in quotes because it's what people perceive of, of as tiny can have lifelong devastating effects for someone with a history or mm-hmm. psyche or whatever mm-hmm. to that comment. Mm-hmm. And someone can be violently attacked and and have resilience that someone else might not have. Mm-hmm. And That means we each have to individually assess each person that we're interacting with to see if they cause us harm. Yeah, that's true. And so rather than walking in going, which one of you is a motherfucker or which one of you (laughs) is going to- Or how many of you are motherfuckers, which is more- Right. Or which one of you is going to be my my guru or which right. one of you is going to be my shining light? Right. Which one of you is going to be my father or my mother or right. my best friend? Yes. How am I going to be all those things to me? To myself. How am I going to be my own guiding light, my own guru, and mm-hmm. trust what's right for me? Yeah. And so Amen. I just want to make sure that that does not get read as anything that happens to you is your responsibility. That's not what I mean. I still, with Karen... I don't want this individualized in silence. What I want is that for people to have the resiliency to start way back and say, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm uncomfortable with this. Yeah. And I'm not going to do it. Right. And That's to not, I mean. thank you. That was fantastic. And not to hold the academy separate from rape culture mm-hmm. that permeates all of patriarchy that we live in. And the academy is part of rape culture. And we, we've gotten much better at understanding it at a certain level with like the young woman who carried the mattress on her back, like some high profile cases, we have gotten better at understanding uh, one particular way that it is, um, that it occurs and it's visible on college campuses, yes. And because of that, there are all these trainings now that freshmen go through about consent and drinking and things like that. And, and that's, that's to the good. But when we're talking to our audience of, of PhDs, graduate school, um, you know, and, and, and assistant professors and so on, we're a whole other, we're, we're kind of a whole other thing in a way. Um, it is a continuum. It's not substantially different, but it's just that the intimacies of the work that we do with one another in our collaborations and our, and our advising and training and so on are so intimate that I, that it, and also so mystified by this idealization of the academic enterprise that that's what I'm really trying to fight back on is that, um, is that it's not exempt from, um, from rape culture. And right. from s- systems of, of exploitation. And I would argue that it's no different than undergraduate culture. Mm-hmm. That we, that it's that, it's that closing of the doors around us as special instead of seeing it a continuum of treatment within the aca- women within the academy, within the culture that, that leads to this, again, acting like it's not going to be that way. Like right. you're going to go off, on do your field work, 
or you're going to go sit and work in a lab with your PI, and this is all going to be separate from the behavior that you saw growing up that then you saw in your undergrad. Right. And that, and I think or the maybe, point you make is it intensifies as the, as, the, <laughs> as the community gets smaller and smaller. That stuff that was, you know, dust in your undergrad becomes solidified into very hard and painful rocks. Yeah, for sure. So to give you a couple scripts, I mean, there, the fact is you have to have uncomfortable conversations. Sometimes they're confrontations. Sometimes they're not confrontations so much as they are boundaries. And so there's just a few scripts that you can think about. Please remember that um, harassers, generally speaking, do groom uh, starting small and getting larger before full-on assaults. And so it's good to catch them at the beginning and so if you're going into office hours and the professor shuts the door, you are entitled to say, I would prefer the door to be open. I'm going to go open it now. And then stand up and open the door. Is that uncomfortable and awkward? Why, yes, it is. Yeah, but you can't, um, the fact that you feel it's uncomfortable and awkward can't really be the litmus test here because, because we're so socialized to make other people comfortable, put other people's feelings before our own. So yeah, it's going to feel yucky. You're going to feel a little ill, but you're allowed to do it. I'm encouraging you to do it. Or a professor says, hey, come to my house to pick up that book we were talking about. Why don't you consider saying, um, I won't be able to come to your house. Let's schedule a time to meet at the department. Things like that. Also, Sometimes people say, but what if my professor is telling me that my work is so wonderful and I, you know, is that bad? And it's actually, the litmus test here is that the professor, is the professor talking about the work or are they talking about you? That's a, this is tricky. It gets into subtleties of language, but is it, your paper was brilliant. I was really impressed with it. I thought the ideas were quite compelling versus you're so brilliant you're such a compelling person. You're a fascinating individual. I want to get to know you better. There's a line crossed there that I want you to be aware of. Predators in particular, people who are persistent and trying to get access in some kinds of ways, don't give up. Mm. And they depend on wearing you down. Do you want to come over and pick up this book? Do you want to come over and do this? Do you want to come to my office for this? They don't stop. Hmm. They're trying to wear you down. I cannot begin to overstate the importance of allies. Mm -hmm. I have been in a number of situations within the academy with people I've worked with who have had some kind of significant harassment, significant sexual assault happen in their academic careers and I'm sure that if I had each of them on this podcast today, they would tell you that their well-being is dependent on the circle they built around them. Yeah. So building that circle in advance mm -hmm. is also a choice. Yeah, for sure. And again, it, they don't necessarily, I mean, it's great if you have powerful allies uh, and uh, keep an eye out for those, but even people who have no more power than you do, but they are, they can support you, you in uh, your boundaries, in your work, your path of knowing that your instincts are good and that you deserve to be treated well, that's in the end what it comes down to. And, um, and so they can be really, really helpful. I want to tell you, keep a paper trail because you may or may not want to report it later. You, this is an evolving situation. You may feel differently in a year, either more likely to report it or less likely. You don't know. Keep the paper trail 
um, it is really good to have um, uh, uh, just uh, your your memory, especially around difficult things, um, are is not reliable, and it it will serve you to to know um, to know what happened and when it happened, the dates and the times. Because should you report it later? Or should you be um, approached to say, we have reports of consistent harassment by this individual. Do you have anything to contribute? You can say, well, as a matter of fact, I do. On June 7th of 2018, this thing happened. So anyway. Um, and, the, and, and in terms of people in the, you know, we keep talking about building a group of allies around you. In terms of the people who are surrounding each other, right? So those of you who are in a program, those of you who are faculty, those of you who are administrators, one of the things that you can do first and foremost with the people with whom you are close is to say what you see. Mm-hmm. I think back of graduate school. And see I think, it, say it. Right. I think back to graduate school. I think back to incidents that were happening with faculty and graduate students. I can remember sitting there and thinking, this isn't okay. Mm-hmm. And not saying hey, you know what? I think you're turning over too much to this person. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't have people say it to me when they should have. Mm -hmm. And I look back now and say, man, it would have been nice if somebody said, you are off the rails. Mm. So get when I say get allies around you, I mean get friends around you and people around you who will tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And if you're a faculty member right now listening to this, and I know some of you are, Please speak up. You are the ones with the power. If you are tenured, I know tenured folks love to feel like, but we don't have any power. Well, yeah, in some senses, you don't have the power you wish you had, but my gosh, you have exponentially greater power than any of the students or assist or even assistant professors, let alone adjuncts and instructors in your department. You got tenure, use it, use it for this, speak up, make life uncomfortable, Make life uncomfortable. And women, this means you're going to have to overcome your socialization too. It means you're not going to prioritize the comfort of the men in your department and the, uh, and the powerful people in your department. And you're going to speak up. You're going to be the squeaky wheel and make yourself a pest and print out flyers and put them up around the department. Petition your department head to bring in speakers on sexual harassment and just don't let it die. And you're going to say, possibly, oh, but I'm going to suffer career repercussions. Yeah, probably. But I mean, maybe. We don't know. You don't know. But what you do know is the women that you're watching being harassed are. Mm -hmm. And here's a sentence I would like us all to eliminate from our vocabulary. He slash she never did that to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It's true. That's that's how it works. And it's that exceptionalizing. Banish this. Are you sure that's what he meant? Yeah. Maybe you just misunderstood. Right. Eliminate them. Right. Be curious. Tell me more. How did that feel? Is this the first time? How can I best support you? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we've talked a long time. We've tried to leave you with some advice. We didn't get into the issue of reporting to your Title IX office. I uh, do want to urge you to consider that. 
Every Title IX office has its own personalities, first of all, as well as its own reporting structures. So we're not really going to talk about that. Kel and I, you know, in terms of what we do, we're, we're always more interested in the individual choices than we are in kind of structural systems. Because I have zero faith in them. For sure. But you know what? I've met really well-intentioned, genuine people operating with integrity in Title IX offices. Absolutely. Again, down to the individual. Mm-hmm. I think there are some really great individuals. Yeah. I believe that the university is devoted to protecting itself. For sure. Absolutely. And it will do everything it can to keep its name out of the news mm-hmm. and quash any kind of negative press. Yeah. And I'm going to leave you with a quote from Mr. Rogers. Anything that's human is mentionable, and anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. When we talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, and less scary. Mm. So talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you.